Before we get going with uh, this episode of the Ski Instructor Podcast, um, I just wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you in association with Castley. Um, Alex at Castley has just uh, hooked me up with the FX85 ski for, which is going to be my powder ski for this winter. I'm really looking forward to that. It's a sort of old school wood core, no flashy technology, um, lightweight, you know, ski. Uh, for skiing off piste um i know 85 is is not massively wide underfoot but that's that's kind of my preference for for an off-piste ski i don't want anything too fat and um and it looks like this one's going to be ideal for winter so if you're considering new skis give yourself uh give yourself a quick look around their website at kessley.com Welcome to episode 23 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snowpro Ski School based here in Valdilier in Switzerland. Um, continuing my summer theme of trying to um, go a little bit, get away a little bit more from um, the British uh, Ski Instructors and the British Association of Ski Instructors, this week I've got an interview with Josh Foster, uh, who's from Canada. Um, Josh lives in, in Big White, um, he's a trainer. Uh, for the, the the CSIA, and uh, also represents Canada on the uh, on the Canadian demo team. Um, Josh uh, runs a runs a snow sports business called Snow Sports Unlimited, and uh, as, and formerly has been the um, the ski school boss at uh, Big White. Um, in this interview, which I absolutely loved, it was a, a fantastic interview. But we've um, and and you'll see from you know the interaction between us how much I enjoyed uh, speaking to Josh. But uh, in this first half, we um, we talk a little bit about his journey and how he ended up in Big White. We we cover um, a couple of tangents to do with ice hockey and uh, and 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 firefighting. Um, we talk about his skiing background and uh, and, and various resorts that, that he skied in uh, and worked in, in in Canada as well as Vail in, in the US. And then we finish off the first half with um, with some chat about the Ski Tips TV, um, which uh, which Josh was was doing, and that's how I initially came across him when I was uh, was was thinking of moving moving to Canada at some point. So um, enjoy this first half. It's it's a wide ranging and long chat, and uh, and, uh, and I really think you'll get a lot out of it. So uh, I'll see you in the middle. Um, welcome yep. to the Ski Instructor Podcast, Josh Foster. How are you? Oh, well, thanks. Oh, well, thanks for having me on, Dave. Oh, that's all right. It's uh, it's kind of a wintry day here today. Actually, it's it's only about three degrees Celsius, so it's uh, joking. not 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 your kind of late June uh, <laughs> weather, but you know, I guess you you get what you get. When does your when does the season what does it look like over there? I'm largely ignorant of anything to do with Canada except for my mother in law who lives in Montreal. And she right. says like the summer lasts about I don't know, a couple of months and then it's back to winter again, but I, I'm sure it's not 
as dramatic well, as that? It depends on on where where you are, I, I guess. Like if the further north you are, obviously the the, the colder it is. But mm-hmm. you know, Van, Vancouver rarely gets a lot of snow. For example, in the in the winter time, whereas mm-hmm. places like Ottawa, Montreal, yeah. Toronto get get a fair bit of snow. Okay. Calgary, Calgary, Edmonton, they can be they can be really cold. Like in terms of major cities yeah. around the country, Halifax will get a little bit of snow. But um, yeah, there's some pretty there's some pretty warm places like where I am though. I, I live on the mountain at Big White, right? So yeah. we're we're at about oh, it's a little over five thousand feet. Oh right. So, okay. <clears throat> so because we're at that that altitude, uh, you know, we we tend to we tend to get you know a uh, a bit of a colder a colder summer. But you know, yeah. honestly, I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I was just about to say the same thing. Like I live, I live uh, about. Oh, what do we live at here? Eleven hundred meters. So what would that be? Almost three thousand, three and a half thousand feet, maybe a bit yeah. more. Yeah. And it's the same. Like whenever I go down to the plain, it's so hot. I just can't wait to get back up here. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, like where where we are, just above uh, Kelowna. Kelowna is a semi-arid desert. Right. So and a beautiful lake uh, down there in town, and then. Um, yeah, it's it's really quite nice, but it can be anywhere from you know ten to fifteen degrees hotter than it is up here on the mountain. So in the summer, you can go down into Kelowna and it's mid mid thirties, and then you come up here and it's you know mid twenties. Oh wow! So it's uh, yeah, it's it's not a, not a bad place to be, especially especially when you do get into those those super hot days in the summer. Yeah, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because I mean, we. Uh, so I went down. Where was I yesterday? I've, I've been on a bit of a, um, been on a bit of a, a wild goose chase across Switzerland um, in the last two days. So we ended up in a place called Kurzers, which is on one of the lakes. But it was twenty eight degrees yesterday down there, and it hasn't really. I haven't really experienced that yet this summer because it's only just sort of starting to get warm here. And yeah. I tell you what, you miss that extra sort of ten degrees. You you. you you lose by living at altitude. You know the evenings are cool and you can kind of sleep properly. If I was living down that down down on the plane, there's no way I'd be. I, I can't, it's too hot for me. It's too hot. I, I'm just not tolerant yeah. to it anymore. I'm really not. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm. I'm the type of guy. Like, I guess given what what I do for the most part, I, I'd rather be. I'd rather be a little cold than, than a little hot. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. with you. So, I'm with you. Yeah. So. I wanted to get in touch with you because you, you won't remember this, but a long, long time, or well, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you won't, I doubt it. When I was first changing my life around and going into the, into the, the ski industry, one of the options I had was looking at um, some sort of certification course in Big White. And mm-hmm. I was sort of frantically searching around the internet for anything to do with Big White to find out what it was all, like, all about. And... Uh, and I came across your series of, of ski tips and stuff on, on YouTube, I guess it must have been. Um, and I think you must have been heading up the ski school at that time or something like that. And uh, and I wrote to you. So I wrote to you and I said, hey, man, can you give me a bit of info on like what this, this place is? Uh, what's it all about? And you very, very kindly responded and, and, and gave me gave me sort of, sort of info that helped me, to, helped me to make up my mind. So I really appreciate you... Uh, you're taking the time to write that time. I didn't end up in Big White, but uh, I ended up here in the Swiss Alps instead. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to work at at Big White uh, for for several years, and and you know, one of the things that that we did start uh, when I was heading up this the ski school was a lot of those instructor training programs, and yeah. we worked with worked with some great companies, and those those companies are still working uh, with Big White, and and we helped. Uh, design and, and craft some of those instructor training programs or I guess gap programs as they're yeah as they're called out of, out of the UK it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a fun experience and you know some of those companies uh, have moved on but uh, but a couple of them are still here and they're and they're doing really really well it's uh, it's a great program it's a it's a good good way for for people to start mm. into teaching teaching skiing and snowboarding and if you're passionate about it then it uh, yeah generally, generally works out is kind of the sky's the limit type of idea for sure mm. and you're saying that you still live there so do you are you based there all all the time or are you do you move around different resorts in your area well i i live like i have a house right right on the mountain at big white it's it's pretty nice it's ski in ski out so oh, wow. for 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 a case of beer, the the snowcat drivers will groom right up to my back door. Oh, that's great! And I and I can uh, put on the skis in my backyard and and slide down to the chairlift and then just uh, slide in from across the road, step across the road in their yard in my in my yard again. So it's oh, amazing. it's pretty convenient for for what I love to do. You know, there's you know that ski and ski out access. It's uh, it's pretty darn nice. Like you can't uh, you can't beat that. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, oh no, it sounds. I mean, it sounds to me ideal. So I'm. Uh, <laughs> I don't quite have that access at my house. I have to drive pretty much everywhere from where I go. But uh, um, yeah, I have a, I have a, a sort of, you know, a big longing for like a cabin in the woods just to get away or something like that. That's uh, it's become quite important to me in the last few years or so. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. We're we're not quite. We're not quite a cabin in the woods. There's there's a there's a bit of a community up here. Like, okay. Um, like I'm, I'm actually my my I've transitioned to, into a few things, and I guess we'll talk about those a little bit later. But yeah. But I work I work in the fire department actually up oh. here. I'm the dep- deputy chief uh, operations and training, and that was one of the one of the reasons to transition out, out of out of Big White yeah. uh, in terms of the ski resort. Okay. But then to give myself some time to do some other things, but um, yeah, the community up here—it's uh, you know in the in the summertime there's there's only a few hundred people that yeah. live up here in the summertime. But in the winter time, you know there can be there can be upwards of fifteen thousand people. Oh, really? Um, okay. Up here on the mountain, so there's there's everything from standalone ski chalets to to condos to. Yeah. You name it, you know, multi-million dollar luxury homes now are being built and and that sort of thing. So it's a it's a growing community, absolutely. Um, but it is nice, you know, it's pretty secluded. You get some incredible sunsets. And then I guess being at the altitude that we're at, yeah. uh, what you get really, what matters most to me is uh, is really, really good snow and, and consistent snow. So, yeah. yeah, not quite the cabin in the woods, but, <laughs> but as, close as, as close as you can get in and still have those uh, those luxuries of uh, modern life and yeah, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. While we're on that topic, then, tell me more about the fire department thing. So the the way that they do it up here in the mountains is that the fire guys, uh, the pompiers, sapeurs pompiers, is um, is voluntary. So it's made up of a bunch yeah. of guys. 
and you know they get a buzzer and, and it goes and I've, my, my, my neighbour in fact is I think he's like a, one of the, the I don't know deputy bosses or something of our fire department around here and I meant to mention to him the other day because I'm quite interested in it but I'm not sure that my French is going to be up to it in a sort of you know faced with fire kind of situation my French is pretty yeah. good but uh, but I don't know whether it would be useful to them to have like an English speaker, you know, around in the event that, you know, a native English speaker in the event that, you know, I don't know, you've got a situation involving a tourist or something like that. Um, I wonder if that might be might be useful. I've been meaning to mention it to him, but is it the same setup where, where you are? Uh, yes, yes and no. I guess like we, we're um, most uh, sort of Canadian fire departments anyways in British Columbia, they're, they're what's known as paid on call. Okay. Um, so you, there's, there's actually more paid on call and volunteer firefighters in North America than there is full-time career firefighters. Okay. You know, and you see full-time career firefighters in, in big cities, right? Like Vancouver, Toronto, all of that, that sort of stuff. Like Mm -hmm. that's what makes up those, those big fire halls and downtown cores and stuff. But in the rural areas, um, it's mostly paid on call and, and volunteers. So paid on call, basically what that means is that they'll get an hourly rate of pay yeah. uh, when they respond to a call or, or when we, when we train and, and practice, um, yeah. practice once a week on, on Tuesday nights. And then we have uh, some ongoing training uh, on weekends and, and that sort of thing. And yeah. you know, at Big White, there's uh, just under 40, 38 uh, firefighters. Oh, wow. Um, that work in the in the department, and there's three of us that are whether what, what you would call a career uh, firefighter. So mm-hmm. we're full time. Yeah. Um, so there's the chief, and then myself as deputy chief training and operations, and that's one of the reasons why you know my training experience is why why I ended up there. And yeah. then there's the, there's a deputy chief of what we call fire prevention and life safety. So he does all the uh, the building inspections and. And things like that, like you would see in a in a regular city. Yeah. Then of that of that uh, crew, we have uh, what's known as a work experience program, where okay. we've got seven graduates from uh, fire colleges. Yeah. And uh, they're just here for ongoing training and experience, and they they, they do an eleven month uh, commitment uh, to the fire hall and the community. Huh. And um, one of my key responsibilities is is training them. Wow. So they're, they just started on June 1st. So mm-hmm. we do, essentially with like a four month, what you would call like a boot camp. Yeah. Where we're, we're very intensive uh, for the first more, four months of training. We train five days a week with them. Yeah. Uh, everything from like just on Monday, for example, we did traffic control, right? So how to, how to, how to direct traffic <laughs> at an incident scene, you know, simple stuff like that. But yeah, if you don't if you don't train it properly and you don't get the hands on experience, then it becomes a dangerous situation. So there's some yeah. some little little tricks that uh, and some skills that they need to learn, and then we do everything from that type of training uh, all the way up to the upper end of the scale, which we call live fire training. So mm-hmm. we have uh, we have a training uh, facility here on the mountain that's is built out of shipping containers actually, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it's built to look like a little modular apartment building, and so we and we can start uh, fires inside yeah. that building in, in little fire bins, and and we've built rooms inside it, so uh, the crew can 
can train uh, fire attack in, in that uh, controlled environment where we can yeah. manage it, but then also train train their skills to get them ready for a career fire department job uh, elsewhere. And that's wow. this is the nineteenth year, nineteenth iteration of of this program. Yeah, uh, here on the mountain. So it's it's actually become one of the most uh, reputable programs in Canada for mm. for training firefighters. So the guys they. They come up here and, and live. Uh, this yeah. this uh, group we've got uh, seven or six men and and one woman that uh, that are participating in that training. So it's that's a, it's a really active department. Yesterday, for example, we did the community cleanup as well, which is led yeah. by the fire department. So we all of our crew were out and we get uh, the locals that are here on the mountain to help out, and we just kind of. After the snow's melted, we, we drive around the community and walk around the community and, and pick up any kind of litter and stuff that's been around. So we tidy the place up. And, huh? Yeah, okay. it's just that. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I've done a few of those here, and it's amazing the stuff you find. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. The things that people leave behind. Mainly it's ski poles and cigarette butts, I guess, but... But uh, well, I, we found a, we found a couple of iPhones yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah, they're a little worse for wear, but yeah, uh, yeah you name it. Yeah, there's any any kind of <laughs> any kind of uh, range of odd things. Yeah, there's a little bit of everything. How did you? I know this is a skiing podcast, but uh, how did you get into the the whole fire department thing? Well, it was actually one of the reasons why I chose Big White. Um, in the in the first place, uh, to to move, I moved here from Banff, and um, when I was a kid, I, I guess like I don't know, I wouldn't say like every kid, but a lot of kids, you know, you, you, I I grew up uh, in a little town outside of Toronto, and in the summers you'd go to kids would go to summer camp, but I always went to junior firefighter camp. Oh, well, there's a camp. Um, That's good. So I, you know, you go and hang out at the fire hall, and yeah. Sorry, you were a little bit broken up there. Sorry, I was going to say that that's really cool. I didn't even know that was a thing, like junior firefighter camp. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So the Whitby Fire Department, they had a little kids camp, and it was just a day camp. And my mom would drop me off, and we got to hang out at the fire hall. And then, then they, you know, you'd do some, do some stuff with the hoses. And, and then we even got to use some of the, uh, what they call auto extrication uh, tools, oh, which yeah. are like... I guess the common term people call them the jaws of life and stuff yeah, like yeah, that where yeah. you got to cut up some some cars obviously with a firefighter helping you because you're just a little kid those things say this is they're pretty heavy yeah. <laughs> but um yeah so i'd always wanted to wanted to do that and when i lived in banff uh tried to volunteer there but you know it was pretty long wait list and stuff and then it's kind of the combination of things there was an opportunity to to move to Big White and and you know looking around if it was going to be a good fit for me, I saw that there was the the fire department and once I moved here, I spent the winter getting uh, getting settled and getting my feet underneath me and then yeah. May of my first year here, I uh, joined uh, joined the fire department. So I'm I'm actually now the longest standing member on the fire department. <laughs> I'm I'm 15, 15 years as a firefighter oh, as well. Wow, that's so, brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, that, that segues nicely into into the bit where I always ask, you know, guests about themselves a little bit. So, I'm I'm guessing as a Canadian, you you know, you're born with skis or skates on your feet, one of the two, or maybe both. And uh, what what was your journey to, to to ending up choosing skiing as a as a as a career as well, alongside the the, yeah. the firefighter? Well, I, I was I was a hockey player. 
and um, played uh, played a ton of hockey as a kid up to a up to a pretty high level mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know, and that that occupied a significant amount of my time. I actually, um, you know, started skiing a little bit and then had to stop uh, skiing for a couple years. Yeah. Just because of uh, the the agreement that we have with the hockey team, that you've got to ensure that you're not doing anything else that you potentially hurt yourself because you need to play. That must have been quite um, a decent level of hockey you were playing then, because there's not. I guess they don't enforce that at a lower level. They do that no, here with was, footballers and stuff. Yeah, I played too. a played a little bit of what they call junior junior hockey here, and players yeah. from the league that I played in. I know play. I played around at some fairly high levels, but not not at a sustained kind of level there. I played a, f- a few games in what they call Junior A yeah. uh, out here. Um, mostly Junior B is what I played, though. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the, the, at the league, that I, the highest level that I did play at, and I only, like I said, it was a very short stint uh, there, but yeah. players out of that league got drafted to play professional hockey. Oh, wow. Um, up into into the NHL and that kind of thing. And I know quite a few of my friends played play pro hockey and that sort of thing you know my my age i don't have any friends now that are still playing but they're all yeah they're coaches and scouts and and stuff uh, like that for the for the pros but it's funny i've just so yeah i've just finished reading a book uh called the code which is i think it it was it's about this sort of unwritten code in hockey about how the game sort of polices itself or did yep. to, up to a certain point i think the game's changed now Apparently, it will change with something called the instigator penalty, which I don't, I don't really understand that much too much. But, but, um, but yeah, it was about you know this sort of code of honor and doing things the right way so that, that, that the game can be played. Otherwise, it just descends into like a into a bit of a mess. And um, it was it was yeah. a super interesting read to see what goes behind all of those kind of scraps and stuff that you see on the TV. It's uh, there's, yeah. there's more to it than meets the eye for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, you know, I think a lot of people that don't understand the 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 game in behind the game, the reasons behind the game. You know, it just looks like violence, really, <laughs> in, in a lot in a lot of instances. But yeah, there's 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 reasons for you know, and then there's different schools of thought for mm. whether fighting belongs in the game and and that kind of thing. And that that's probably a whole a whole other podcast that somebody else is doing. But, yeah, probably. But it's, probably. <laughs> but but it's true. Like, I mean, the violence and the fighting, essentially, this book was saying, if anyone wants to read it, it's called The Code. I can't remember who, who it's by. But yeah. it sort of says that the fighting is necessary to allow the skillful players to play the game, in essence, because it gives them space exactly. to play. Yeah. And apparently, exactly. you know, you guys will learn this as you grow up playing junior hockey. You know, it's, le- it's a learned thing. Um, like, it's just sort of... Here's you know it's like a it's passed down. Here's the way that you do things. This is the the tradition of it. Yeah, well, exactly, and that's why you know they they used to have as you probably read in that book. There's the skilled players, and then there's the enforcers yeah. out there on the ice. And a uh, you know the arguably the world's greatest hockey player in Wayne Gretzky was mm. always always surrounded by guys like Marty McSorley and Al Secord and yeah. and guys like that, that that make space for him out on the ice. And other other teams don't take liberties uh, at players like that yeah. because they know that if they do take a shot at Wayne Gretzky, they've got to deal with Marty McSorley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <And> that's, <laughs> uh, that's, that's why he was able to do what he was able to do. And I guarantee you, he, 
anybody that interviews Wayne Gretzky, the first people he thanks uh, for his career uh, mm. are, are those are those players, right? The guys that that's right that uh, made the space. In fact, one of the biggest trades in hockey history was Wayne Gretzky going from Edmonton to Los Angeles, mm. and Marty McSorley went with it. Yeah, right. His his enforcer was part of the trade. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know, you got your you got your guys, the guys that you're comfortable with, and yeah, it's just the yeah the way that the the game is played. And if yeah, to the uninitiated, it's um, maybe not the easiest to understand. But yeah, the games the games changed for sure. It's mm. it's a way faster game than it ever used to be. Mm. Um, you know, and that the players uh, they've gone through this cycle of being sort of average size to, to huge. Mm. to now they're now they're back to they're they're still all pretty big guys like that in that yeah. that six foot kind of 200 pound yeah. sort of range anywhere from sort of you know 180 to, to 220 pounds so mm. they're they're big guys out there but but they're man the speed and the skillfulness is it's really it's really changed absolutely. yeah yeah for sure what were you what were you what were you <laughs> you can tell me you're an enforcer I was a forward, yeah. I I was a uh, you know what what you sort of call a grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I I wasn't uh, you know any of the goals that I scored they weren't they weren't pretty goals you know <laughs> I would be in in front of the net picking up the garbage as they say yeah yeah someone's digging, got to digging do. the digging the puck out of the corner to get it out to the to get it out to the skilled guys mm-hmm. you know those battles along the along the boards and stuff yeah. um, I was a I was a pretty good skater I was pretty fast but. But uh, there's there's a you know the skillful players in in playing hockey they they the the term that they often use with them is they have soft hands mm. meaning they're 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 skilled with the puck and then there's a joke among hockey players is that you got cement hands <laughs> <laughs> right and I was I was a, I was a little bit more on the cement hands side yeah yeah it's not the not the soft hands so I was yeah pretty good skater you know but not overly skilled with the puck but uh, yeah you yes. know I was a bit more of a role player where you just kind of got the puck out to the guys that uh, that put it in the net Good so play. yeah yeah I think there's a there's, there's there is that in every sports team isn't there in, in, in football or soccer as you you know you guys probably call it you know there's the there's a sort of water carrier in the midfield there's a guy who sort of you know just sort of goes around and picks up all the loose ends and does all the dirty work so he can give it to the good guys who can actually play with it and, you know, that's it. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. That's it. But it takes, takes all those positions, right? You know, everybody plays a role to yeah. to contribute to the team. And that's one of the things like most of my guys at the fire hall, especially these guys that I was telling you about, mm. that's, that's something that we talk about. We talk about teamwork and, and everybody mm. has a role to, yeah. to play and, you know, not everybody's going to be the chief, right? But, no. uh, no, that's true. but, you know, you've got a role to support that and that's the way I think any good team works, mm. right? So, yeah, I know for sure. So how, so where did that so once you uh, presumably then once you'd done with once you were done with hockey, you then yep. turned your turned your attention to skiing. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of strange how that that came about. I was working it was in in the, the summer and uh, I was working um, doing some tile work like I was doing marble yeah. and granite. I was working with a contractor. It was basically just a summer job and and I I taught skiing a little bit part time. Uh, on the weekends and a couple of evenings at a little place uh, close to my house where I where I grew up and mm. and um, yeah and I really enjoyed it and you know the, the the contractor that I was working for they had some they had some financial struggles and stuff so that the company didn't work out mm. 
so that I was there I was kind of October uh, with uh, with no job or, or anything to do and uh, the Canadian Ski Instructors Alliance at the time they uh, published and they still publish an edition of what's called Snow Pro okay. but in, that, in those days it was a magazine and, and every year annually in, there was an insert in the magazine that just had a listing of of all of the, the ski resorts in Canada and the, the contact information for the directors and, and what staff they were looking for and stuff like that and I Came home from work one day, um, you know, where they where the, the company sort of folded up shop, mm. and uh, wondered what to do. And my mom said, "Well, why don't you go? Why don't you go teaching skiing? This this came for you." And mm. so I I opened it up, and uh, right in the center of it, like with a staple, <laughs> because it yeah. was a it was basically just a photocopied uh, kind of thing. Yeah, it was uh, it was Sunshine Village, huh? and uh, a, f- a friend of mine had skied there before and said it was awesome. And I'd never skied in the West at all. You know, I grew up in a small community just outside of Toronto, in Ontario. And, mm-hmm. and I just, you know, the biggest place that I'd been to at that point was, uh, was Mont Tremblant and Mont St. Anne and stuff, mm-hmm. which are really big and great, great resorts, but, but nothing like the resorts that you have in the West. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, um, yeah, I opened it up and, uh, phoned, uh, phoned the ski school and, they said, "Can you send your resume?" And that was back in the days where you either had to mail it, yeah, or uh, or he, you know, I said I gave it to my dad, and he took it to his office and he faxed it yeah. uh, <laughs> the, the next day. And uh, so yeah, then I had a phone interview and and got hired uh, over the phone. So fast forward a couple of weeks, I'm I'm at Sunshine Village. It's uh, dumping snow, and I I'd never skied powder before or anything like that, and. Yeah, it was on my my first day. I had a big spill, and I spent forty five minutes looking for one of my skis. Oh, so, <laughs> oh. we've all been there, but it's it's terrible, isn't it? Especially well, when you're out with the boss. But yeah, when you're in a uniform too, and <laughs> <laughs> it's in your first day, and you're in your your ski school uniform. But uh, oh, yeah. but yeah, it was fun, and I was some met some some great uh, some great friends there that I'm that I'm still. I'm still friends with, uh, you know, a couple, couple of the guys that I, I talk to a couple times a week, and this is back in the in the late '80s, early '90s that that I met these guys, and, and we're still all really good friends, and and still still ski together and, and that sort of thing. So I just I guess that year I just kind of fell in love with it, and I made a deal with my parents that I I'd, I'd give them a call every Sunday night, and uh, one Sunday night my mom says you sound different, and I said yeah I think. I think I found what I really want to do, ah, and uh, that's cool. And then that was it. They just said, uh, you know, a lot of my friends uh, at the time, their their parents were pushing them for like, when you, when are you going to get a real job? Ah, uh, yeah, uh, kind of, you know, that old that old shtick. And <laughs> and uh, my parents, I was really fortunate. You know, they, there was this long pause on the phone when my mom goes, "Are you sure?" And then and then I said, "Yeah, I'm sure." And then my dad just said, "So okay, well." Be the best you can be at it, oh, and uh, and then that was it, and that was that was the last, the, the the last and only, I guess, conversation that we had about is this what you want to do? And yeah. So that's so I guess that was that was a, a real motivator for me that that you know what if they're gonna tell me ask me to just be the best I can be at it, then I, I never want to let them down. So that's why I kind of pursued this the sport. Uh, yeah, as I, for as sure. I have. Yeah. For yeah. sure. There's two things that come out of that. One, yeah, there is a whole generation of kids, 
kids, young people. I get I get CVs every week. I, I imagine you probably did when you were the boss at the ski school as well. It's very easy to email everybody. But back in the day, you know, I remember applying for jobs. Like yeah. when I used to be working in London and you'd have to look through the back of the paper, hope that you saw something that sort of matched or was what you wanted to do. Literally, you know, type out or write out something and then post it and wait. Like it wasn't instant. It was a whole, whole, yeah. whole different world. And yeah, I, I do remember when I first came here. So this guy, um, this guy Rolf, gave me my first job in the ski school in Morjan. And um, and he, it was, I think he just wanted to go skiing. But we went to Verbier early season, and the first thing he wanted to do was go off piste. First, very first, it's typical kind of Rolf, and, and he won't mind me saying that. First thing he wanted to do was go off piste, and I kind of we, we just sort of off the back of this thing somewhere in. In, in Morjan, I'm a fairly fresh behind the ears kind of, uh, you know, new instructor. And I got hit with like a, a little case of vertigo on a certain little bit. And I couldn't move, yeah. it was properly frozen. And I was sort of, you know, I couldn't move, legs wouldn't move, wouldn't do anything. And then, you know, there's my new boss sort of sitting down, you know, at the bottom of the mountain sort of waiting. So oh, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And I'm just sort of, can't move. And I sort of saw my dream sort of evaporating before my eyes. At that point, yeah. and uh, yeah, that was a that was a real embarrassing one. But um, but luckily, he uh, he looked past it, so that was uh, that was that was good. That was good. Yeah. So where did um, where did your journey take you after that? So the best that you could be ended up being being going through the the, the CSIA system, I guess. And, yeah. Well, and, I I did uh, you know at least a course or two um, every year and. Uh, I worked at uh, at Sunshine Village in the um, in the winter time, and then uh, and then one, one summer, a, a friend that I met uh, there at Sunshine, um, she was uh, she was a cook at a tree planting uh, outfit that worked in in Thunder Bay, and and so in out out of Thunder Bay in Northern Ontario. So so in you know looking that first year for a summer job. I uh, ended up going tree planting uh, for a good portion of the summer, which, wow. yeah, you know, rewarding work, but but really hard work, yeah. and not not overly fun uh, work, uh, that's for sure. And then you know did that, and then some went went back home uh, to to Whitby, and and ended up driving an ice truck uh, for the rest of the summer and uh, <laughs> delivering ice, which right. The, the the most irritating thing about delivering ice is people people in your sweat and buckets right like just <laughs> unloading all this ice and people are going oh that looks like a nice cool job yeah I could <laughs> and you're going, it's not man it sucks like it was <laughs> it was uh, it was hard hard work and and but you know it just it, it <laughs> occupied the rest of the summer until I could go skiing again and then yeah ended up back back at sunshine uh, again and then. Uh, had a really good winter, and then met met another guy um, that was uh, working at a place uh, as as a as a medic at a rafting resort on the Ottawa River, uh, wow. just just north of Ottawa. So, ended up heading there and becoming a whitewater rafting guide. Okay. So, so it, and it, it worked out great. I ended up uh, rafting in the summertime and skiing in the winter, and then after a few seasons with the rafting uh, company. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. They, hmm. they ended up uh, the daughter of a guy that helped develop a lot of the skiing in Eastern Canada. His name is John Clifford. 
Okay. There's a run at, at Tromblon, for example, uh, called mm. Clifford, and it's it's named after him, and he helped develop a lot of the smaller areas in and around what they call the Udaway region, which right. is kind of the Ottawa Valley, and he, uh, he he owned a small place called Mount Pakenham, just in Pakenham, Ontario, a little quaint community just kind of north uh, northwest of, uh, of Ottawa, and his daughter was part owner of Wilderness Tours, the rafting company, or one of his daughters. His other daughter, Betsy Clifford, she raced uh, for the national team and then that Nancy Green kind of era. Okay. Um, yeah, so pretty pretty storied uh, family in terms of skiing, especially in, in the East. And so Joanne, the daughter that owned the rafting company, they ended up buying Mount Pakenham, this mm. little tiny ski area, and like the, literally tiny. We used to joke it was just 3600 inches of fire burning hell right where, <laughs> like where it was it, it wasn't all that all that big yeah. but but what it lacked in in altitude it i always used to say that it made up for an attitude a lot of uh, wonderful people uh, that lived that lived in that area that, that came out that really supported snow sports and then and because I was working as a supervisor at the rafting company, I'd worked my way up. Hmm. They knew what my experience was skiing. Um, I was a level three at the time, level two coach, and mm-hmm. do level one courses and all of that sort of stuff. And they asked me if I would help out. Um, you know, what in their first couple of years, well, they they bought this resort and uh, worked as the assistant director in the ski school in that first year and. We helped uh, grow and develop um, the ski, what they called the skiing in schools program. We we were one of the first places to to come up with this, uh, which a lot of resorts still use uh, to this day in Ontario, called station teaching. Because okay. you got you got a hundred kids, but you got six instructors, right? Yeah. So you got to figure out how are you going to move these kids around. So we ended up creating these little stations where they would learn to walk. On their skis here, then they would do a straight run over here, and yeah. one instructor could could keep a bunch of kids cycling, so yes. that you could you could have you know a, a ridiculous amount of kids. You could have a twenty to one scenario, but as long as you kept them occupied, uh, yes. and it was safe, and they were progressing. And then as soon as soon as they were ready for the next level, then they bump up, and then that instructor that started them at walking would then move to the next station or the last station in line, which might be linking turns, right? Mm. And so they, they'd go to there. But, but anyways, I ended up uh, giving them a, a two-year commitment, and I worked uh, as the assistant director and as their trainer and uh, for the first year. And then the second year, I ended up being the ski school director okay. uh, there uh, and uh, continued to grow and develop those programs. And I, I, I passed, uh, passed the level four uh, that year at, uh, at Tromblon. And, uh, yeah, to, due, due to the help of a lot of people in, in that ski area and that community, you know, where we were able to, you know, I pretty much had carte blanche, right, where yeah. I was able to, because I needed to train my teaching. So, for example, I created uh, a level one instructor training program where, where I had every weekend I had this group uh, for 10 weeks, and then on their 11th week, uh, they did their level one, so yeah. I trained them for ten weeks. So it was kind of a, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement. I trained them to the level one standard, but then I got to work on my my instructor training and yeah, yeah. they called yeah. at the time for the for the level four. And then good buddy had a place at Tromblon. We went skiing on our days off 
uh, at Trombla and managed to be successful. And then, yeah, and then that was that was the kind of the first foray into into ski school management. Mm. Um, it was good. And they're lovely, lovely people still in touch with uh, with with tons of those people. Um, and, uh, yeah, they've, they've been able to grow the place like leaps and bounds beyond whatever we developed when I first started there. They've, uh, they've really become, a, an outstanding small resort outside of Ottawa that caters to families and, and has some great experiences and things like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. yeah, yeah. Then from there, I, I, uh, when I moved East, um, my, my dad, uh, he, um, he said, well, because he used to come skiing in the West with me when I was at Sunshine, he'd come out every year. And he says, well, since you're in back in the East here, we should do a Western ski trip mm. um, every year. So that first year that I was at, uh, at Pakenham, we ended up uh, going out to Whistler and I'd never skied at Whistler before. And we had a, had a good uh, sort of father-son trip to Whistler. And then that second year I was in the East, we ended up in, uh, in Colorado. Okay. Um, so I went... Went, uh, we we skied out of out of uh, Copper Mountain, but we went to you know, we went to uh, A Basin, and then we went to um, uh, you know to to Vale, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, and Keystone and, and and places like that, right? So yeah, and yeah, had had a, had a really good time in sort of Summit County there, and then ended up my dad said, "Why don't you bring your your resume with you and just to, just to see, right?" And, Okay, so I brought my resume there and uh, and ended up uh, deciding to drop it off at, at Vale. And uh, as I was going, I asked a guy um, that was coming out of, uh, of the Vale Ski School office, um, I asked him, you know, where could I drop my resume off? Yeah. And uh, he said, "Well, you can drop it off with me. I'm the I'm the ski school director." <laughs> what are the chances of that? <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay. And uh, you know, it was uh, it was you know, it was pretty pretty lucky to 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 be able to run into yeah. run into his Dave at the time. And uh, Dave he says, "Well, what are you doing?" And I said, "I'm I'm going out for a ski. Like, do you want to go for a ski?" And I'm like, "Sure." Now, I'm with my dad though, and my dad kind of an intermediate, uh, intermediate skier, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I said I'm with my dad, and he says, "Oh, yeah, that's no problem. You know, we don't need to, don't need to rush or anything like that, right?" And mm-hmm. I'm like, "Okay, so yeah, so we went out and and ended up, uh, ended up, you know, going for a slide, we chat up the up the." Eagle Bond uh, gondola, and then from the Eagle Bond down to the Avanti chair. And when we got on the chair, he says, uh, "When can you start?" <laughs> <laughs> so, ah, you so long. Okay. Yeah. So it was just you know fortuitous timing, right? Is uh, is 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 what it was. You know, it was uh, a lot of life is like that, though, isn't it? Like it, it's a question of timing. A lot of you know things just happen like that. Uh, yeah. quite interesting things I've noticed happen because of good timing right place right time you know there's a reason that 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 phrase exists I think yeah well absolutely yeah it was um it was it was just kind of a kind of a fluke so I ended up uh yeah that was the year sort of the when the that um 
you know the h2b visas were were pretty easy easy to come by and um and it was uh yeah it got me a got me a work visa and then uh next thing you know i'm 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 working in in colorado at at vale (laughs) what are the um what are the 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 uh, presumably because the rockies go all the way up so that's west coast uh u.s skiing is it yeah. is it dramatically different once you cross the border into the west coast or the western Canadian resorts, or is it sort of similar in terms of the scale and the way uh, the, the skiing is? Well, in some places, yeah, like it's there's obviously you know skiing culturally is is skiing culturally, right? Mm. Um, you know, like there's some there's some similarities, you know, at at. Uh, you know, and it's kind of strange. You know, like I remember one of the things when I first went to, just maybe this a bit of an aside, but where when we're uh, first inner ski I went to was uh, was uh, Korea mm-hmm. in uh, in two thousand seven in in Yongpyeong, and um, I remember the coach who got on the chair. I'm sitting next to John Gillies, who was the coach of that team, and everybody's quiet, and we're all just kind of looking around. And John was the first person to speak, and uh, and he says, "Well, there's something strangely similar about this, but it's at the same time very different." <laughs> and then we all just kind of nodded in agreement, and then it just went quiet again. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it was it was it was that kind of kind of thing. And I think that that's the the way that it is. There's definitely some some similarities. Um, mm. You know, for sure, the the U.S. resorts, especially in Colorado, they're they're a lot more developed um, mm. than than what you would see at a lot of the the Canadian resorts. But that said, you know, it, it, there's just the the ability to do that. I think the the mountains, like you know, um, the mountains, in, especially in Colorado, big, right? Like you mm. got, you know, you're you're surrounded by by peaks that are that are in that eleven thousand to twelve thousand foot range, right? Mm. And there's a few fourteen thousand foot peaks around and that kind of thing. So the altitude is is uh, is really high and, and the, the snow the snow is good. It's uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And then um, you know, from when you're teaching, like when you're a, when you're a, a ski instructor for sure, you know, the Working in the U.S. Um, was a pretty good opportunity, you know, from mm. from what I was used to and that kind of thing. Like culturally, it's a little bit different, you know, how their customers interact. Like the the U.S., for mm. example, it's a it's a culture where they believe in tipping and yeah. things like that. Not that they don't in Canada, but they don't as much. Yeah, uh, you know. So yeah, you, and you got paid an hourly rate that was was really really good mm. uh, as well. So. So yeah, that was and that was it was nice. Like after a couple of years of being the ski school director, where everything's on you a little bit, right? Where you're mm. or assistant director and director, where you know you're the you're the go-to. It, there was especially at my age at the time, it was nice to just kind of go back to being somewhat anonymous. Oh yeah, and you could yeah, yeah. you know you're you're one of you're you're one of uh, fourteen hundred. Yeah. You know, in in that in that crowd, right? And that was it was the biggest place I'd ever been to. Yeah, there were days. You know? there were, yeah, there were certainly days where I would I would give anything to go back to that. Only some days, not not all, but just to be kind of yeah. just to be your only focus was just right. I'm just going to deliver, you know, 
I've got to be here at this time and deliver a decent, you know, a kick-ass session. And that's my only responsibility. You know, that would be lovely. But you know, those days are long gone, I think. Uh, they're not going to come back anytime soon. Ah, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So we know then that the pay is reasonable in, in Vale and they tip well. This is top tips for uh, for people, people looking to, to move around. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Like, it... I, I couldn't believe it. Like it was, uh, I only ended up uh, being in Colorado for one year. The, the, the girl that I, I was with at the time, she, she, um, couldn't get a work permit. She's Canadian, of course, so okay. couldn't get a work permit, uh, to, to go back. Mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, so then I, you know, I'd have gone back, but it's kind of, it was weird then too, how the timing worked out that, that they, they did away with the H2B visa. And I was just a couple of years prior to when everything kind of fell apart and you couldn't go to the U.S. Um, yeah. Where it was really, really difficult. So it was once again, I guess, fortuitous timing. And then I ended up, uh, I ended up as the assistant director at Lake Louise. Okay. Um, you know, that, that job was posted uh, in the same kind of <laughs> format. It was uh, posted uh, in, the, in the Snow Pro or Ski Pro magazine and, and uh, ended up uh, accepting the job as the assistant director at Lake Louise. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. so kind of came back, went back to Banff, you know, lived in Banff, yeah. worked, uh, worked out of Lake Louise and uh, did seven years as the assistant director uh, there. And then uh, back, to, back to Sunshine just for one year as a trainer. Yeah. And uh, then from Sunshine uh, here, to, here to Big White and then did... Did uh, fourteen years as the ski school director at uh, at Big White. This is a lot yeah, of big numbers of... you're throwing around. You don't like your profile picture on your your thing here. Doesn't look that old. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I, do. I guess it's not living. Lots of people say that to me. They go like, when I tell them how old I am, people like they're they sort of what? <laughs> they yeah. Don't really. Yeah, I guess I'm lucky. Like living uh, living on the mountains has sort of kept me. Looking a bit young, but I, I turn uh, I turn fifty this year. So. Oh wow! Fair play to you. Yeah. It's like dog years. Don't worry about it. Like skiing years don't count as much. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Um, the only thing I know about Lake Louise is that we see it every year on the World Cup, and all the guys are like covered in tape because it's so flipping cold there. That uh, oh my gosh, yeah, it can be it can be uh, ridiculously cold. Like it can be absolutely. Absolutely yeah. nuts. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I like I, you know days where it's uh, you know minus minus forty is is kind of a kind Ooh. of a regular regular occurrence. You know, and yeah. um, it's it's stunningly beautiful though, Lake Louise. I think it, like in terms of views uh, in the world for for ski resorts, um, because you're in the national park, you don't have like. You have in some areas in BC where there's logging going on and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, so you have this view out to, out to over some logging work, whereas in Lake mm -hmm. Louise, you've just got this beautiful carpet of trees, the spectacular vista of uh, wow. Mount Victoria and Temple, and then then the lake itself with the chateau on it. There's yeah yeah there's not there's not many places like I've been fortunate. I've skied at a ton of places like Zermatt's got a pretty incredible view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the view at Lake Louise is uh, is is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an amazing place, and and it's a, it's a fun mountain. It's a super challenging uh, mountain in spots, and I guess though, like any mountain, if it gets 
if it gets good snow, it's going to be, it's going to be great. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, it's an incredible place to, incredible place to be. Yeah. You can always tell, um, when we meet on various exams and stuff that I've been on over the years, you can always tell the guys who ski in cold places, especially the guys who, who ski regularly in places like Zermatt or Sass Fay, places with sort of fairly serious altitude. Cause they've all got yeah. like really good thick gear, you know, like jackets yeah. and pants and gloves and stuff. And around here where I ski, you know, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a temperate climate, you know, it exists really as a, as a snow, snowy destination because of the proximity of Mont Blanc and the, and Lake Geneva. So it's sort of stuck bang in the middle and it's got its own sort of microclimate, which allows skiing to happen really in places that, that it wouldn't normally maybe. And, um, and yeah, and so, you know, often we're just skiing around in like shell jackets, you know, quite light gloves quite quite early on in the season. But you meet the guy from the guys from Sasfe and they're just like, Yeah, oh we it's minus like twenty there regularly. You know, we'll yeah. see the sun sometimes. It's uh, it's quite quite serious, you know. You you can see the guys who are who are used to that kind of really cold cold stuff. But how how do you if you go back to your time at Lake Louise, like how do you deal with clients in that kind of cold like presume you have a lesson right you've got to deliver it but if it's mm-hmm. minus 40 outside you can't stay out for that long in that surely no like we would you know you lots of breaks and stuff like that you just keep them moving and you yeah. use the chairlift time to talk about uh about whatever it is uh, that, that you want to help the client with and then and then on snow time there's not a lot of standing right and you just kind of yeah. Yeah. Kind of keep keep it moving as best you possibly can, crazy. you know. And it, it, you know you wouldn't get that for for weeks on end. You'd, you'd you'd get that for a stretch, like where you might have a week of yeah. of 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 that kind of kind of weather. And and then you know, but the yeah, average temperature there it's it's kind of in the minus fifteen to minus twenty <laughs> kind of range. Whereas whereas yeah. here here at Big White, it's minus five to minus eight. Yeah. Is is the average temperature? So when I moved here from Lake Louise, I was overdressed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I, <laughs> I had all my down stuff and and everything like that. And yeah, and you go out there, you look like the Michelin Man <laughs> there on certain days when you're working at uh, in the Rockies for sure. The Rockies can be really cold, you know. Yeah, where you yeah. you you put on every every piece of ski clothing that you have uh, yeah. to go out there and brave it for for a while. But yeah, you know, I guess yeah, you just got to roll with what the situation is right so if it's uh yeah if it's that cold you just monitor the client and keep checking in on them looking looking for frostbite and can you still feel your toes that kind of thing and then you just slide in for a hot chocolate or a coffee and then warm up and then out out you go again yeah where do you where do you uh, presumably everyone has heated boots there Ah, well, this is when I was there. It was kind of pre-heated. Well, like you, you could get some of the first incarnations of, of heated, heated boots and stuff like that. But yeah. I, I've, I've still like you know, thirty years of teaching skiing. I've, I've still never had boot heaters. I don't. Um, I think but, it's a thing you get though. I've heard this from people. I don't get cold toes at all, really. Like, exceptionally, yeah. maybe a bit of powder skiing and a race boot, right? But, but it doesn't bother me that much but i think someone says if you like you get cold toes once once you once that starts to happen that's it you're done yeah. like, that never goes away yeah yeah I, I i've heard that too i i know lots of people now that are using those heated socks which are all right um 
that that seems to be a real popular thing amongst uh, my peers these days is not so much the heated boot but the heated heated sock right? which uh, logically it makes uh, more sense doesn't it yeah I'm kind of interested in it but at the same time like I don't really I don't really suffer from that all that all that much so yeah so I'm pretty lucky that way I guess alright so so you ended up in Big White how then did the how did so and the thing I associate most with with Big White is the Ski TV tip series because that's kind of how I came across you in the first place. Yeah. It was that yeah. was that just a um was that like a marketing thing for Big White or was that just you happened to be there and you were the face of that that ski tips thing? So it was I, a tryout. It, yeah, right. it was a tryout for for that job. Uh, Rob Butler uh, who's a uh, long, long time kind of idol of mine, that's mm-hmm. for sure. You know, like we, when I was first starting, like for example, back in those days, it's Sunshine Village, when we were doing video training, we'd, we'd always joke and stalk in front of the camera and, and do our best Rob Butler imitation, right? <laughs> and he's the master, right? He's the sort of the inventor of, I think, the video ski tip, right? Like yeah. he's the first one that I ever saw, and and he, he created a, a format that was that was kind of like this winning format, right? And that show it started out. Uh, it's still it's one of the it was not on the air now, but in its last few years, it was one of the longest running television shows continuously running television shows in Canada. Oh really? And it yeah, yeah. It started out it started out as ski base, it right. was, and and um, you know, Chris Robinson and Lynn Worrell uh, hosted it. And uh, so Ski Base the, the ski travel magazine show really is what it was. Mm-hmm. And then and then they threw in like there was some there's a pods perspective which Steve Podborski did. And then there, you know, then they did that uh, with Meredith Gardner. She did some uh, freestyle reports and stuff. And they had these these iconic people like in the Canadian ski industry on on the show. And and Rob Butler was probably the the biggest icon for ski instructors, anyways. Where where he he would do these tips and just the formula of the thing to do like a two three minute ski tip mm. you know he did he did stuff where he'd ski down you should look you should look him up it's amazing stuff where he he skied down playing his guitar uh one to one time and he was singing and playing his guitar doing a ski tip and then he he actually makes a a, a, a ski turn with just his bare foot on his ski to show how your ankle works in a wow, ski turn no way yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. And we, he used to do them at Sunshine Village. Okay. So, so he would come out to Sunshine every year, and that's why we we would we would all do these imitations, right? And I ended up one year because uh, he wanted to get a pretty fast turnaround time, and he did the ski tips in a similar spot almost every year, unless it was sort of terrain related. But we did it on this uh, Rock Isle Road, it was called. And one year, I ended up driving the snowmobile mm. uh, for him. Right. So I was I was shuttling him from the bottom of the slope up to the top of the slope, and I, I was with him all day. So I got to know him pretty well and stuff. And then a few times the show was at Sunshine, and um, and I was I was lucky enough to be on the show uh, as just a skier, you know, given given mm. the host the tour and and that kind of thing. And then um, yeah, you fast forward. Uh, Rob wanted to retire, and uh, they. Ski TV, it was called at the time, or Pontiac World of Skiing. It's, yeah. It was sponsored by Pontiac. Um, they they just put out this this national ad for 
tryouts uh, to replace <laughs> Rob Butler. So I uh, hit up a, a, a guy uh, local here. He's at, actually at Silver Star named uh, Klaus, Klaus Gretschmacher, and he he uh, was a videographer, and and uh, he uh, helped me do uh, do a, a demo video, mm-hmm. and I, sub- I submitted that video and uh, got the job. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that was it. The first, the first year, I split it with a friend of mine, Steve Young. Yeah, and uh, so he did six tips, and I did six tips, and then the following year, um, they they gave the thing to me. Steve hosted a little bit of the show, but they gave me the the tips uh, moving forward. So, so yeah, I shot, and then you know, part of it, like uh, Big White uh, agreed uh, to the hosting contract, and so. So we hosted them here at Big White. Steve did did his first year at Whistler. I did the ones here at Big White, mm-hmm. and then uh, then from there on we moved forward. And we, um, I think I did, uh, I think it was ten years of that. Maybe, oh, wow. Maybe maybe even eleven, ten ten or eleven years. Yeah. Of that, where we did uh, we did 12, 12 ski tips a year. How um, long? So, how long did they take to film? Because these days, right, anyone with a camera. Can upload stuff yeah. like this onto YouTube, no problem. But back yeah. when you were doing those, it was significantly more difficult. Yeah, well, you know, I I've worked with and still still really good friends with the same videographer, one of the videographers that Rob Butler finished with. Mm. His name's uh, Daryl Palmer. Which he's a, he's a big guy, so his nickname is LG, which just stands for large guy. <laughs> and he, he uh, super tall, uh, but super nice guy, really fun, really funny. And he, he lives in Whistler with his uh, wife and daughter. And um, he would come out uh, twice a year. We would shoot uh, six tips in the the spring and six tips at the er- in the early season. Mm-hmm. And so the tips the tips that we shot in the spring would be the tips that led uh, the following season with. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, you, and that's why it was, you know, you'd see the, the snow was different, the, the, mm. the light was different and stuff like that. But he's, a, he's an incredible cameraman. Like some of those shots, like where, I, where I'm even going fast, he, he's, he's going backwards, right? Oh, really? And, and keeping wow. me in frame and making sure like the, probably our biggest challenge was sound. Yeah, because uh, you're using wireless mics, and and we're really particular with the sound quality because it's got to be good. It's on television, mm-hmm. and then it's then it's going, going onto the internet as well. So you get a you get a pop or a crackle in the wireless mic, and we we'd have to shoot it again. Oh wow! Um, but you know, it was pretty rare that that he would mess up. <laughs> you know, every <laughs> once in a while, he every once in a while, like he he might he might mess up, but. Uh, but pretty pretty darn rare. But like with the tips, like if if I was on, and I and I and I, usually the uh, the winter tips, like the early season ones, I did better than the spring tips mm. because I had I had all summer to kind of formulate them in my mind. So I had a better script for them because I, I I wrote I wrote all of those and they're just off the top of my head kind of thing and. And so I would I would have like the ideas of the shots laid out a little bit better, but then you get into the winter, and then the next thing you know, LG's here next week and we're yeah, shooting ski yeah. tips, yeah. and I don't I don't have one right, <laughs> or I haven't written one, yeah. So I'm like, oh geez, I got to come up with six ski tips. So uh, so sometimes the ones in the winter I had a little bit more time to think, and then in the, in the spring, 
Um, you know, sometimes they were a little bit more rushed. But in terms of how long they took to shoot, um, I could, you know, if I was on it and I had my I had my A game and the sound worked and, and I didn't fumble uh, what I wanted to say, like we could do a tip in a, in a run. Oh, you know, okay. Yeah, because we break it down into different segments, and we had a little bit of a language going between mm. the two of us of what sh- what the shots were. We call it a a ski two, a ski by, a ski two and stop. A, okay, a ski a ski two and wrap and stuff like that. So any of those tips where where you see me sitting on the chairlift doing the intro or the wrap or whatever, yeah, that was one that we ran out of space and and we did the <laughs> intro or the wrap yeah. afterwards. And then in the tips where you see where you see it cut to like my face saying from beautiful big white ski resort yeah, yeah. or whatever the, that's because I screwed up that line. Uh, um, yeah. Cause the, 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 just saying like from beautiful big white ski resort, Canada's favorite family resort in the sunny Okanagan, right? You'd, like, oh, you'd, my God, yeah. you'd have to say that. And then I, and then on a cold day or whatever, your lips are frozen and you kind of stumble. So, yeah. and then all any, any, literally any of the ones where you see it, with the wrap where it cuts to just my head and shoulders in it is because I screwed up the line. (laughs) (laughs) You'll notice there's quite a few of those. It's the magic of editing, isn't it? Like that allows you to get away with that. There's uh, there's plenty of mistakes I make on these podcasts and uh, most of them, in fact, to be fair, most of them I let let go straight through. I think it's a bit more authentic that way, but the, uh, there are some stuff that has been edited out of a, of a lot of these podcasts previously. Um, You know, some things that I haven't wanted to say or some things that, that the guest didn't want to go out or whatever. That's that's fair enough. You know, that's fair game. Yeah, that was fun though. And they like LG would do the do the rough edits, like you do the rough cut, and then yeah. he'd send it to uh, to Toronto to uh, to Steve Simons, and Steve would would clean it up, clean the sound up, put the music on it, and put the graphics on it, and then it was then it was ready to go. Amazing, ready to go for the show. It was. Yeah, I was man. It was uh, that was a lot of fun, and yeah. I still do some work with with Ski TV, right. but um, they're they're now Ski TV China. Oh wow! Uh, so I uh, so I've been doing uh, doing some stuff with them. We we did uh, had a few of my contacts in China on a show, for example, uh, last year, which oh. will air uh, this year for Ski TV China. So oh, cool. so we're still yeah. So we're still doing some work with the show, and we've got an eye to do some tips, but. It'll be um, it'll be mostly just digital. Uh, yeah. It won't be it won't be to TV, uh, except for it. Well, and then digital digital for sure in China as well. Oh wow! Oh wow! Yeah, well, it's yeah. super cool, right? Yeah. This the ski tips memory lives on in my own skiing. Uh, the you'll be glad to know that um, every now and then I still remember the the elbows down tip, and that oh, is, yeah. uh, that's one that I take with me into. So it's living on. Living on in the Swiss Alps. That, that, that there's one. lots of people that, that do that. You know, like it's 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 funny who recognizes you and why why they recognize you. Like, it, I'd be you know walking through the airport, especially like in Toronto and places like that. If you go to the Toronto ski show hmm. and pe- people like because that's that was sort of the biggest market for the for the show. Yeah, and uh, yeah, people recognize you. It's kind of fun. It's a bit flattering as well. That, <laughs> That yeah. they recognize you, but the weirdest thing is my my voice. Um, I think people recognize my voice. Like I'd be standing in the lift line in Whistler teaching a CSIA course, yeah, and uh, and people would come over and say, "Hey, are you uh, are you that Josh guy?" <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, 
Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah, because I, I would, recognized your voice. Right? It would be more voice, right? Because obviously, yeah. in a lot of those videos, it's so it looks like it's so flippant cold that you wouldn't have your goggles up anyway. Yeah. So they wouldn't be able yeah. to recognize your face. Yeah, my staff here at Big White, they, they made me a name tag once there when they they swapped it out on my on my uniform jacket and I didn't notice, so I wore the thing I wore the thing for about a week. And uh, you know, all the name tags at Big White they say your name and where you're from. Yeah. And uh, and this name tag they put on there said Ernie uh, from Sesame Street. <laughs> so, sort of sound like my voice i sound like ernie from sesame street oh yeah so, okay yeah. yeah i hear that a little bit yeah, yeah so, they, yeah, so that I, I skied around for a week with that name tag on i didn't even notice <laughs> <laughs> well at least you keep it most of my ski instructors seem to be extremely good at losing theirs and, uh, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or and or are just rebels and don't want to wear it i'm the only guy that really managed to look after his but I think they get through a lot more uh, picking up people than I do, so, uh, so that's fair enough. Josh as much as I enjoyed having it and uh, making this podcast. Um, he's a really, really lovely guy and, and, and so laid back, and, uh, and I think that really, really shows through um, in the interview. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about something that's coming up. So the next podcast is already being recorded, um, and uh, actually just uh, just need some editing before it will come out um, next month, and, and it'll be with Lynn Mill from the British Association of Ski Instructors. Um, Lynn works out of Val d'Isere and uh, is, is on the um, British uh, Association National Education Team, demo team, and um, and we had a really, really good chat about that, and, and also is my first female guest. Um, it's been difficult to track track down females to interview but um but yeah and, and i know a few of you have written to me about this but uh but uh, yeah so finally after 23 episodes uh 24 is going to be with lynn and uh, and that one's a really cool interview as well so uh, so that's the next one that's coming up um in the second half of this uh this interview we talk more about the csia um i wanted to particularly talk to josh about east versus west and and uh and french versus english um and uh, and and we had that chat, and uh, a couple of in- very interesting things came came out of it. Um, we also talked a bit more about interski, and uh, and there's some other um, chat also. I wanted to specifically ask about how the sort of the ice hockey culture in Canada translates over into skiing in terms of technique. So uh, so the, there's some interesting chat about that as well. So enjoy the second half, and uh, and I'll catch you on the next one, episode 24 with Lynn. So uh, see you later. You mentioned the CSIA, so let's let's segue into that. You you, you still run training courses, obviously. Um, yep. You're a trainer with them, and you've 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 made the interski team, I guess, a number of times. Um, how how is well how how was that 
that particular journey? Is there a selection for the interski team, or yep. uh, uh, yeah, and for the trainer training positions? I guess in the same way that there um, is for the British. Yeah, well, you know, we when you're teaching courses, you you work you work as a contractor. Hmm. Um, you know, and when I was at Big White, uh, you know, it's it difficult to take time off and time away. Hmm. Uh, as you would know, as a ski yeah, director, it's, yeah, yeah, it's sure. difficult to yeah. to sort of take that time out. So I did a lot of courses here at Big White where you just end up working uh, a really long day kind mm. of thing, where you get to the office super early, then you're on snow for a course, and then you're in the office super late. But yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I've worked worked the level four course. Uh, I've lost count now. I think, you know, there's, there's a couple of guys that probably did more than me, but they're no longer as active, so I think I'm the I'm the senior guy now when it comes to to the to the level four course. I mm-hmm. think I've done probably twenty to twenty five level four courses and exams. Um, you know, then because there was a few years there where we where we did a couple of courses a year, uh, but it's usually the level four courses only ends up being once once in the east, once in the west. Although, um, you know, that format looks to be uh, evolving. Um, as as the organization grows and evolves, so mm. I've been yeah I've been really lucky to be able to do that. Where teaching courses, uh, I, I sometimes tell people that I think I think some sometimes I, I love teaching skiing more than more than I love skiing itself. Huh. You know because yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 because you get to you get to do both right and, yeah. and watching watching somebody improve and. And watching them have a, have a positive result—that's that's a really rewarding feeling. And sure I get to do true. that when I when I teach courses for the CSIA, you know, and mm. and then also being able to to kind of help that next generation of instructors and and help them tap into their their passion for skiing and their passion for teaching skiing. It's that's incredibly rewarding too to mentor those people along and yeah. and, uh, and and try to try to help turn out the best ski instructors that you possibly can because you know that, that the ripple effect of that or, or the end user of that is going to be the skiing public. So it's, yeah. Yeah. it's a great opportunity to, to kind of contribute uh, in, a, in, a, in a really, really rewarding way to, to, this, to the skiing mm. uh, in, the, in this country, right? So, yeah, in terms of the, the process and stuff like that, well, it's, it, you kind of work your way through the, the course conducting levels, much much like the certification levels themselves, mm-hmm. right? Where you, the way our process works is you, you kind of, you, you, you teach at one level for a while and then you, then you can uh, apply to teach at the next level. Then you go through a little bit of mentoring. There's a little bit of an assessment, what we call a rookie uh, process where you've got to, uh, uh, you know, shadow uh, and, uh, alongside a more senior uh, course conductor, and mm-hmm. then, then you do some teaching on that, and then they they basically sign you off, right? So yeah. much like you earned the one through four certification, you also go through a process to earn your one through four course conductor uh, mm-hmm. status uh, as well. And um, yeah, I've been at it at it for thirty years, right? So when I think of those thirty years, twenty five of them at least, I've been a Hmm. Well, probably 20, 26, 27 years I've been a, a course conductor from level one through four. Okay. And yeah, and it's it's good. Like, yeah, it's it's an opportunity. Like I said, to 
to help to help somebody along in in their in their teaching and in their skiing and it's yeah I think it, in the big picture you know skiing with the general public certainly has its it's fun and it's enjoyment for sure but I think from a you know from a, a giving back type of scenario being able to, to do that with new newer instructors or or help somebody achieve the level that they're they're striving for it's Mm. probably even a, a little bit more rewarding yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Yeah, i really enjoy it yeah. i've heard i've heard some really really interesting things uh, interesting positive things about the the csia um i don't know professor know very much about the system how it works and what the the the, the sort of you know the deep the minutiae of of what you guys talk about when you're on instructor courses yeah. but i have heard some really really cool stuff about the the, the sort of the feeling within the organization and what I would call maybe like the fraternity or the community. And um, yeah. I'm with, so at the moment I'm working on a, a, one of Basie's um, sort of working groups. So Basie's going through quite a, a big change at the moment internally. Um, you may or may not have heard about, but yep. they, they, they've yeah. sent some working groups out to, to, I don't know, really come back to the organization with some different ideas and about, you know, how we can reconnect necessarily with a membership and um yeah i'm sort of qualified also through through swiss snow sports so it's just my actually my main thing rather than Basie. but uh yeah. but the british british guys probably well certainly in our working group are taking a lot of the good stuff from you know necessarily the, the swiss and the canadians in terms of how it feels to be a member of of the csia and yeah. how you know what it what that experience is like and I think the feeling is in the British that they've gone a bit too corporate in recent years. And it should feel a little bit more like it feels when you turn up for a Swiss snow sports exam or a, I guess a Canadian exam where it's sort of, you know, everyone's kind of willing you on and it's, it, you know, it should feel friendly rather than it being a, an exercise in, in, in judgment necessarily. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, that's, sure. it's really interesting to hear that. And I think it's something that other nations are certainly aspiring to for sure. Yeah, well, our, one of our sort of key key objectives when we're working on these courses is, it, it, yeah, like the you know our, our our formatting is is has evolved and and it's still evolving and changing a little bit in terms of course structure and and that and that kind of thing and the format in which we evaluate our standards and that and there's there's definitely a, a standard for every level. Mm. Um, you know, and there, there is uh, moving forward. You know, the level one will will remain as is. Um, uh, level two changes a little bit. Level three is pretty similar. It'll remain kind of as is. And level four is something that we're we're working on as well. I'm really lucky. Like over the years, I've I've volunteered a lot of my time to participate with the CSIA in terms of course development and and things like that. I've been on several you know committees uh the education committee for example yeah. uh, where where we help develop the the course content itself um i've been involved uh, in on the sort of the i guess you could call it the political side of the csia where i've been uh the chair of the, the bc regional uh, committee mm-hmm. um and currently i'm uh, the chair of what we call the technical committee so the the tc as we call it uh, for short uh, the TC, we, we help uh, develop and discuss the way that, that our organization views and describes ski technique. Okay. Um, so so how, how do we describe the movements associated with 
what we believe our ski technique to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what uh, what is our technique based on? You know, and and from this recent interski uh, in in Bulgaria, you know, it's really fun because I you know I went to interski in two thousand seven in Korea. And then uh, was up for the next one, but uh, but broke my ankle, oh. and uh, and you know couldn't go really. Well, I went to the last tryout, but I was on one foot, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need both feet to make the Canadian interski team. That's good advice for anyone who's trying to make it. You definitely need you two need feet. Both. Both feet, yeah. So unfortunately, I didn't. Uh, I didn't end up uh, going to uh, to Saint Anton mm-hmm. in in 2011, and then uh, you know, the Ushuaia, the, the the philosophy was a little bit different, and you know, they wanted to go with some park uh, people and stuff like that, and then lo and behold, I'm back in the mix for for mm. uh, 2018 in in Bulgaria. So. Mm. Or nineteen, sorry, in Bulgaria. So yeah, it was it was pretty cool to, to be able to participate in that, and and it was interesting too to see like what we learned in two thousand seven, and then have that twelve year spread, and then to see where where other countries have come to, yeah, uh, and other organizations, you know, like the the bigger organizations like Basie's, Swiss No Sports, the Austrians, the French, mm. you know, um, although the, those guys weren't there. Or, or the French weren't, uh, and yeah. the Italians weren't weren't there in Bulgaria, but the Austrians sure were. Mm. And um, to see like the the bigger skiing nations sort of growing and evolving in their approach, but then also seeing some of the smaller skiing nations um, getting on board. So I think it was really interesting in Bulgaria that mm. that there was more similarities coming out yeah. um, because. You know, a lot of countries' approaches in 2007, you could say that they were based on skiing style. Yeah. Whereas, whereas in in Bulgaria, they were based in science. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, and when when we all base our our technique and our approach on on physics and science and you know physics and biomechanics, then you can't help but end up starting to talk about the same thing. Right, because, yeah, because it, it, science is science. Right? It's so. true, right? It looked like that to me. You look at the old ones, and there are, you know, there is plenty of video around. And, and credit to you and your colleagues at the the, the CSIA. One of my favourite ones is I can't. I think it's the one from twenty eleven. You've the got comparison. Yeah, videos. that's. I mean, yeah. that's one of my yeah. favourite videos of all time. Um, yeah, what a nerd I am! But I've watched that a lot, and um, and. Yeah, there's one particular one where there's, I can't remember who he is, the Swiss demonstrator, and he's kind of coming over a roller, and he ends up landing on one foot on the inside foot. And I'm just like, wow, that looks just so good. Yeah. Um, and But luckily, with well, within those ones, because it was good that you captured those ones, that they've still got, you know, you've got French demonstrators in that one, which yeah. we haven't seen now for a while. And I love the way the French guys ski. You know, they're, they're really fluid. It's beautiful, and yeah. It, it is yeah, nice. I like it too. And um, it's a shame that the French and the Italians aren't aren't there anymore. It's a real shame. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I, you know, it would be nice to see. It'd be nice if everyone could just get on and and you know go there for skiing sake rather than politics sake. Um, yeah. But that's probably a story for a different time. But you're right. The thing that struck me about this year is that a lot of countries are now there's a sort and, and Jazz talked about this in one uh, Jazz Lamb from the UK um, talked about this in mm-hmm. one of the early podcasts that we did of this series. And he said there's been a lot of convergence, you know, like a lot of ski nations are skiing the same 
Um, There is some stylistic differences, I think, with the guys from maybe Japan, Korea, New Zealand, Mm. Australia. I saw some of that. Yeah, that sort of... um, that sort of uh, what would you call it Asian Pacific Rim kind of skiing they keep very very low but um, in transition but but otherwise everyone kind of yeah it was pretty similar there was a lot of similarity that's for sure yeah and a lot of similarities too now in in, in the teaching approach mm. um, you know where you know I remember remember a real fun session I went to in Korea by the Hungarians and they they um, they had their approach was almost kind of based in marketing, yeah. Uh, where they where they had like the the session they called it the heart of a lion. Then there was another one, the eye of an eagle, and then another one. Huh. It was when Shakira was popular. It was called the hips don't lie. Yeah, and it was uh, and they you know they were they don't have any skiing in Hungary, right? So they're taking yeah. people to Italy. Okay, and 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 their approach was one where they're trying to engage the customer, right? But it wasn't. Mm. It wasn't based in any kind of, you know, modern learning principle or anything like that. It was just based in having some fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which was which is kind of interesting. And now you see everybody at this last inner ski. They're they're talking about uh, different learning styles and you know more holistic teaching. And uh, you know we we've been in our country we've been working with more of a reflective learning style where you sort of experiential education where you're sort of working in these cyclical fashions and it was it was really cool to see like the americans were on side with that hmm. uh, you know the germans were were coming on side to that as well and definitely the aussies were were on side to that too so you know even even what even what people and organizations perceive to be the best way that that people can learn on snow is something that's becoming a little bit more unified in its its approach too, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. It was a really fun event as well. Yeah. They've been pushing quite hard in the Swiss Snow Sports magazine that, that, that comes through quite regularly to me. They push quite hard um, this concept of their, their My Magic Moments concept, yeah. which is, you know, also yeah. about, you know, trying to create that one moment in a session where it's kind of everything's great and beautiful and... and you know, something, you know, that I guess what they're looking for is that kind of that aha or that sort of light bulb or that click moment where that people are really buying into skiing. And, yeah. um, and yeah, so that would, that would sort of tie in with that approach that, that you were talking about as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah cool. Now tell me if, if, since we're on the, 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 the subject of Canada, yeah, uh, I've just driven from one side of Switzerland to the other. Um, I was uh, just up in the north trying to buy a dog, funny enough. Um, yeah. And, uh, bring his mountain dog? No, no, I, I couldn't yeah. bring myself to do it. They don't live very long and they're a bit yeah, dopey. I've had, I've had two of them and they, yeah, they're here, right. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I lost my, well, listener, this is a long and emotional story, but I lost my border collie about two years ago and right. he was with me for 13 years and I, I decided finally that I'm ready to, to replace him. So we went all the way to the Jura right. in the north of Switzerland and uh, picked out a dog today. So hopefully uh, that's going to be really cool and he'll be with us in about a month, which is terrific. And it's oh, funny great. actually to see like these five little guys just sort of, you know, fighting each other and rolling around in the garden. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, so that's, uh, that's that. And so that is, that's coming. Um, and on the way back, I drove back, this is a long and convoluted story to say that, on the way back we drove through a French-speaking area, German-speaking area, back to a French-speaking area, and then back home. 
Now, yeah. in Canada, you have that also, I'm guessing, um, within different ski areas, because the ones in the east you were talking about, uh, Mont Saint-Anne and Mont-Tremblant, they're French, yeah. right, or French-speaking, mm -hmm. I'm guessing, and then out west, yeah. everyone speaks English. How does, yeah. how does that all get managed within the organisation? And the follow-up question to that is because the PSIA must have this same issue, is that in different regions, you ski on different snow types. Right. So if it's in the east, I'm guessing in Mont Saint-Anne and Tremblant, they, they're used to skiing bulletproof ice. I'm guessing. I'm only yeah. guessing. And, you know, out west, you're, you're skiing powder all the time. So yeah. how does that get managed within CSIA? Yeah. Well, it'd be nice <laughs> if it was powder all the time. Wow. It's not, it's not quite powder all the time. <laughs> within but, reason. But... Yeah, well, when we produce materials, for example, like with the TC, like we have timelines to to produce materials because it needs to go to translation, right? Before yeah. it gets re released to the to the to the membership at large, right? Okay. So everything that we do in our organization is totally bilingual. Um, so French, French, and English. You know, our head, the head office. Uh, for the organization has always been based in Quebec in the Montreal area. It's moved around to a couple of locations, but mm. it's based uh, it's based in Quebec. The organization was founded uh, in Quebec, okay. um, you know, by a gentleman named Ernie McCullough, based out of the out of Tremblant, and the Tremblant Ski Club is is sort of the beginnings in 1938 of of the Canadian Ski Instructors Alliance. Okay, um, so it, it it's it's kind of well rooted in in eastern canada and then kind of progressed west from there so you know in terms of content and and that kind of thing it's yeah a lot of it is depending on who who makes up the current committees like all of our conversation for the most part like with technical committees education committees and stuff although we might go to a meeting in Montreal, the mm. bulk of it will be done in English. Mm -hmm. um, although, uh, there, if required, if the, the French-Canadian participants uh, require a translator, there'll be a translator uh, that, would, right. uh, that would participate in, in those meetings. Because we do, we do have some of our membership that, um, that prefer uh, to, to, to participate in their native tongue which is yeah. if it's French then then so be it we, we we make those I wouldn't even call it a concession because it's not it's not a concession it's it's, it's just accepted, how it is right yeah. it's, it's just how, how it is right so uh, that's no problem but it but yeah it, it so in that regard you know in terms of the communication and messaging it's it's in both and it's equally balanced in French and English you for example if you phone the national office and you get somebody's voicemail, everybody's voicemail will be in French and English. Huh. Um, and it's just the, the two languages. It's just accepted that that's the way that it is. Now, um, now how does that work in the, the, sorry, I'm jumping out before you finish the question, mm -hmm. but how does that work within the training body? Does everyone have to speak both languages or do you only run course, uh, question, do you only run courses in English if you only speak English? Because you speak both, you I guess. See, you, you, sign, you sign up uh, in courses, more so in Quebec. In the West, pretty much everything is done in English. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, virtually everything is done in English. But the courses, you have the option to sign up for a French course or an English course. 
Okay. Um, like, example, um, I went to Quebec to teach the Level 4 course a few years ago. Mm. And, you know, I understand enough French to get by in Quebec. Yeah. I'm I'm embarrassingly bad at my my French and like you know yeah. it's it's school French that you know most most Canadian kids uh, when I grew up anyways we we had French classes all through school mm-hmm. so you know when I was in high school I would have considered myself bilingual but it's like one of those things if you don't use it you lose it kind, yeah, of, yeah. kind of deal mm-hmm. so and and I had French roommates when I had my first few years teaching skiing at Sunshine um, so. You know, you, I understand more French than I'm confident enough to speak. So you can get by in a room where, where that's happening. But but the courses are run French and English. Like I said, the, for the level four, for example, because there's only a, there's one, there was one Western course and one Eastern course. Hmm. You, would, you would sign up if you were in the East, like the, the candidates from Ontario would generally want to be in an English cell. Mm-hmm. And then the, the candidates from Quebec would be in a French cell. Okay. Um, there, there was a couple of times a little bit of crossover, but but for the most part, uh, the numbers are such that you can have a couple of English groups and you have a couple of French groups, yeah, and that sort of thing. And then you're evaluated uh, in your in your native uh, tongue, and 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 that's just the accepted way to go about it. In Quebec, it's more of a thing where where they'll have uh, an English course or a French course, and the French courses definitely outnumber uh, the English courses. Mm. But there's, you know, there's the opportunity there. So, from a language sort of context, it's not, it's, it's, it's not really a, not really an issue. It's just a thing. It's, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. the way, the, the way that we operate. In terms of the the oh. content though, and the, yeah. and the skiing, um, you notice like when we come together for interski, you've got you usually have five five members from the east, five members from the west. Mm-hmm. You have uh, a woman from the east, a woman from the west um, of those of those ten. So there's normally there's normally ten ten uh, participants has been sort of the number for the last several interskis. That's been the balance. Although you know uh, Ushuaia, for example, there's three women on mm-hmm. the team, and that's just the way that the tryout uh, shook down. Mm-hmm. Um, our organization is definitely kind of, uh, you know, in terms of the membership, it, it it's not it's not quite fifty fifty men and women, but mm. at the higher levels, maybe maybe women are smarter and they don't pursue ski instructing as long. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but there tends to be more more men at that that higher level. So, um, yeah, the the team is definitely weighted weighted towards men, but. Yeah, I'm, going, I'm having. Funny enough, I'm having that conversation in another podcast I'm recording next week with yeah. someone from the British Interski team, and they. Yeah. We I think we're gonna. It's a difficult chat to have because you don't want to trip yourself up with like you know. What I, I I need to give it some thought before I have the conversation, but you know, participation numbers of women in snow sports and how many get through the higher level, and should it be adjusted for. You know, quality of entry or quality of outcome. You don't really want to go down that road. Blah blah blah. You know, yeah. it's it's a minefield, and um, I really need to give that one some thought before I before I get there um, and yeah, have that for, chat. But it's uh, yeah, it's tricky. For us, it, it the the team makeup though is a part. It, it seems to work out to be as a per, uh, a percentage of participation, right? So yeah. 
you know, so there's two women out of ten on the team, and it would it kind of makes sense because of the number of participants trying out to make the team, mm-hmm. women make up maybe twenty percent, ten yep. to twenty percent of the of the the applicants. Mm. So it it to me it yeah like maybe trip myself up, but to me that seems to be balanced then. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you know if 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 it was 50-50, if it was half women, half men trying out, well, then the team should reflect that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I believe, right? And mm-hmm. and so I, I think, in my opinion, and it's an opinion and it's my own, um, it, I don't speak for anybody else in that regard, but it, to me, there's there's balance there. But, mm. but what, you know, what you do notice is the pre- preference for, for turn shape. Yeah. And and ski choice and things like that, like the Eastern team members, yeah, uh, they they all want to be on a on a on an RD slalom, like a race department slalom ski is yeah. what they that's what they spend most of their time on. Because that makes sense, right? Uh, if it's icy all the time over there, yeah. And so and so, but here in the West, you know, we we want to be on on a much larger ski, right? So what we ended up doing is this last inner ski, we had a bit of a compromise, right? Because mm-hmm. the, and we ended up choosing an, an 18 meter ski is what we ended up skiing on. Okay. Um, and everybody with their, with their sponsorships and stuff like that, you approach your manufacturer and most, most manufacturers now like head, head makes the, the, there's the iSpeed Pro yeah. and the iSpeed, yeah. which are, and that's the ski that I ski on. And I ski on that out here a fair bit, but because it's a narrower ski and we're mm. skiing in a softer snow environment, it's not, not my everyday ski. My everyday ski is 88 under the foot. It's a it's a Monster 88. I've heard Whereas good reviews the, about that, that ski, to be fair. It's supposed to be yeah. an amazing ski. It's wonderful. And unfortunately, heads heads. Um, doing away with that ski last year was the last year of the monster really people were um, raving about that last year the new monster yeah we That's need to create a movement <laughs> to bring to, wow. for them to keep keep producing that ski because it's it's been one of my favorites for for a decade so, so it's uh, yeah, yeah unfortunately awesome. for you there'll be a i won't be joining that there'll be a cheeky little advert at the start of this for castley who are just uh, picking up <laughs> the ski so uh yeah um uh, who, who makes some wonderful skis too right? absolutely so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good but yeah but like the, to, in that vein like you know that it was easy for the guys on rosignol to get the to get the hero um 18 and, yeah uh, and, which is basically their master's race ski yes. one of the guys is on blizzard so you know one guy was on nordica and they, they're they're pretty similar skis so they were able to get the firebird or the doberman and, and everybody's on that similar 18 meter ski but but the yeah the eastern guys for sure and men, men and women all of them prefer the the slalom the slalom ski so that that in and of itself kind of does does kind of trickle into our course content to come back to your original question mm-hmm. of of things things east and things west and and what we do in our courses is the course material is the same Mm-hmm. Uh, east east to west and the delivery of that material and that message is the same and one of the things that we do identify in what we call our decision making process mm. 
and that that's that's a that's a structure that we use in in terms of teaching is that we just call it our decision making process mm -hmm. and one of the components that we factor into that or you have to factor into that is the, is the way that we term it is the situation yeah right so the situation is snow conditions the situation is weather uh, the situation is traffic even on the mountain mm -hmm. the situation is the terrain all of that kind of stuff so when we have an approach that identifies that as a significant aspect in the choices that you make within a lesson, then it really doesn't matter if it's east or west, because if you're identifying the situation appropriately, then you're going to change your approach based on yeah. what's required, right? So so that that allows us to have a unified message east to west. Yeah. Um, where, you know, we're not changing the way that we teach at, you know, Whistler as compared to Marble Mountain. Yeah, right? Whistler being the far west coast, Marble Mountain being probably the last ski area in the east coast in Newfoundland, mm. right? So, yeah. you know, like it's, it's the same lesson structure, it's the same content, but because we've opened it in a way that a good ski pro is going to identify things like, you know, like we talked about earlier, like the cold yeah. in, in Lake Louise. Well, you know, that's your situation. So you've yeah, got to adjust to that, mm. right? Yeah, like, yeah. or the or the rain uh, that you can sometimes get in the east. Well, that's your situation. How do you, how do you adjust to that, right? So, yeah, yeah it, it kind of allows us to be unified, if you will, east to west, uh, for sure. And, and because of that, you know, our organization, we're confident that we're, we're delivering a quality training product to ski to ski pros for yeah. to create great ski pros that that basically you know allow us to support our biggest partner and our, our organization's biggest partner yeah. is the ski schools yeah. right is the ski schools across the country and we want to turn out the best the best ski pro that we possibly can for them okay do you, just a there's a last little quick tangent on on that subject but on the mountains mm -hmm. in Canada is it the same as in the US? So it's the corporation that owns the mountain and then you work for the ski school at that mountain? Or are, yeah. is there scope for independence to work in Canadian mountains as well? Well, I know it's pretty much it's pretty much all owned by by the corporation, the ski yeah. resort itself. Like uh, I'm fortunate enough in my other business with Snow Sports Unlimited that I do have some agreements with places. Mm -hmm. um, but there it's not there's nowhere that I'm aware of that has like a separate ski school. Like you don't have a choice of like you, if you go to Whistler, you know, there's different programs within the umbrella of the ski school at Whistler where they do work with some partners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like they work with companies like yes, improvement. They work with um, uh, all tracks Academy is their mm -hmm. one of their instructor training programs. They work with, um, Another organization, a good friend of mine and his wife run called Extremely Canadian, okay. which is like their their off piste uh, program, like their big mountain skiing program and snowboarding oh, okay. program. But they they all fall under the umbrella of the ski school. Like there's only there's maybe a couple of small privately owned ski schools now left in the country. Like mm -hmm. the last big one was at uh, Panorama, and that was Heather and Don Billado. That used to that used to own that, and that was the that was probably the last large concession style 
mm. ski school, ski school in Canada, and they were the only ski school there. Um, mm. And that's the way that most ski resorts in Canada operate. There's one ski school. There's not a, you know, and some of you know within that ski school, they're with those different programs. They might wear a different uniform and stuff like that, so it yeah. has a look of a different ski school, but it's not. It's, it's just like a self brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a program within it, right? Yeah. Okay. Look, uh, I, we've blown past the time that I said that I'd see. I, I have two little things that I'd love to ask you about if you've got time. One is Snow Sports Unlimited. Sure. You've got to tell us about yeah. that because that's your, your new baby. But the first one, mm-hmm. it goes with a little bit of a story. So I was, for a couple of years couple of years ago, I had a, a, a skier come out, learn to ski with a school group. Saw him two or three years in a row who used to play ice hockey for Great Britain. So we're going back to ice hockey a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. He seemed to pick up skiing super easy yeah. and had no issue with falling down, obviously, you know, because yeah. you get smashed all over the place, I guess, in ice hockey. Because so many kids skate, I guess, in Canada, do you get a lot of crossover from one one to the other? I mean, yeah. presumably your experience was you jumped onto skis they seem pretty easy because you've got loads of fore aft, loads of space yeah. like to keep you keep you up compared to hockey, yeah. and but I guess it's quite two footed compared to skiing. Would that be? Yeah. Would that would they be fair things to say? All of those. Uh, really, really similar movements. Absolutely, you know. And um, my, uh, uh, you know, a former girlfriend. That, that I went out with, the one that I, you know, I mentioned mm-hmm. with in Bale, she she was quite a good hockey player, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and w- women's hockey is massive in in Canada as well as men's hockey, and and you know, I I taught her how to ski from scratch to the chairlift. It probably took ten minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, because I just told her, I said, hey, like go straight and then kind of stop like you're stopping on your skates, and she went down and did a hockey stop to one side and then I okay now do it the other side and she did that and I said okay now put two together and don't quite come to a complete stop yeah and and she did that and I go beauty parallel turn let's head to the lift (laughs) and then that was that was it right so so people that have that comfort and background for sure you know they they can they can progress quite quite rapidly um that said though you know, in in our country here, we're experiencing a fairly different phenomenon. Like you see in a lot of ski schools, or what what's termed as a new Canadian uh, here, where there's a lot of immigration in our country. Uh-huh. Um, where you know, when you look at when I first started, uh, you know, what looked to be the the, the regular participant in, in a lesson, Canadians are n- notoriously a little bit hard headed. Um, so we'll go out and beat ourselves up ourselves and uh, try to figure it out, right? Or you yeah. go out with your, bud- your buddy, and let's literally, like, my first skiing experience was exactly the way that I just described it with my with my former girlfriend. I yeah. went with a school group my very first time, and a uh, typical kid in school, I wasn't listening. <laughs> And uh, they they were they wanted to the instructors wanted to split the kids up so we went to the top of this little T bar, and I got on it with my best buddy uh, who I'm still good friends with and his family, sort sort of supported my skiing at the beginning because no, nobody in my family skied, mm-hmm. and and so we got to the T bar and he says okay this isn't a seat just make sure you stand up, 
And so it's funny that, that like, that's kind of the way that, that you would do that, right? You yeah. wouldn't say, don't sit down. You, you, you teach the positive and that, and inevitably I tried to sit down and he says, nope, stand up, stand up, stand up. So we went up to the top of this run and we get to the top and the, the ski instructor says, okay, um, what you're going to do is you're going to ski down this slope. And one of the instructors that's waving to you at the bottom, you're going to join their group and you're in their group. <laughs> and uh, so I sort of, you know, sort of pseudo skate over there because I played a lot of hockey and I said, okay, so how do you ski? And the yeah. instructor looked at me like, yeah, nice one, kid. And, uh, you know, here's the joker in the group. And then I say like, no, seriously, I've never skied before. And he goes, well, what are you, what are you doing up here? <laughs> You're supposed to be down there with those kids. And he points to this group of kids walking around in their boots and stuff like that, right? And yeah. he goes, okay, well, just wait to the end. And I'll, I'll get you down. And I'm like, I'd sort of saunter back over to my buddies there. And I said, well, there's no way I'm waiting to the end uh, to be to be helped down by this instructor. Because one of the reasons why I joined the ski club was for a girl anyways. So there's no way I was going to be embarrassed by that. And, um, and so I asked my buddy, Justin, the guy that helped me up the T-bar, I said, so how do you... How do you ski? And he goes, well, it's just like, same thing, just like stopping on your skates, but you don't quite come to a complete stop. Huh. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, the instructor says, okay, you know, a couple kids go and I watch and then he goes, okay, next. And I push out and he's yelling, wait, wait, stop. <laughs> and, and then down I go, uh, you know, got up a little bit of speed and really sloppy kind of hockey skitty stop type stuff. And I ended up in the second highest group and yeah, that yeah. was my... That was my first run, and then uh, that was luck because the rest of that lesson I was all over the shop. But it was, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty funny. So yeah, but you know the the skating certainly does contribute to it. But like I said, in in this country now we're experiencing a lot of new Canadians, and so that that you know skate before you can walk uh, type of culture that that Canada was when I grew up is is a little bit different because. You know, hockey is a bit of a foreign sport to a, mm. to a lot of new Canadians and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So, you don't see that quite as much, but it's still it's still a thing within our kids' lessons and and stuff like that. You know, hockey mm -hmm. too is it's an expensive sport to to play. The equipment's expensive, the ice time's expensive. So, mm. so you, there's a lot more kids now uh, that, uh, that are, that are looking to other sports, you know, like any, like anywhere else in the world, like, uh, like, as you call it their football, soccer here, yeah. it's, it's a massively popular sport because all you need is a ball and some, some shoes, right? Yeah. Yeah. The barrier to entry is low, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Oh, cool. Okay. Um, tell me then, let's, let's finish off on snow sports unlimited. What, what, tell me more about that. What is, um, what is that yeah. all about? Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's my my company. Um, I started that. Uh, I guess we're going on to year two of uh, Snow Sports Unlimited, and then the name in and of itself sort of describes a little bit of my philosophy as the unlimited uh, mm. part. And um, you know, one of the things that 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 we try to to do is is create experiences and remove remove the limits that. That are holding people back, mm -hmm. um, and and so from a, a, a philosophical standpoint, that's that's how we how we operate. You know, like 
working in, in, in the confines of, of the ski resort type of management structure and things like that, you're not really able to, to do certain things right mm-hmm. uh, that, you, that you want to do. So no longer having those things to, to once again limit me, um, you know, my... Mm-hmm. My plan was to, to move past that. So so what what we've been doing is uh, is a lot of instructor training. Um, so I, I've got sort of regular weekend programs that uh, that I run out of a, a small ski area called Apex, which is near Penticton. Okay. So just you know, it's about an hour and a half from from here. Um, and I chose Apex because the terrain is off the hook. Like it's. Yeah steep and gnarly and big bumps and and stuff like that so it's it's once again helping people move past those things that are limiting them and Mm. moving past their fears and trying to help them be more comfortable through through developing their their skiing skills and then we also focus on some instructor training as well and we help people get to that next level in terms of of their certification so you know those things that you where you don't really have the time to do, for example, on a regular CSA course is really spending the one-on-one time with people to understand the way that they think about skiing and the way that they teach skiing and really getting to the heart of of them, really, mm-hmm. and, and what's holding them back personally from their, whether it be understanding or a lack thereof of, of ski technique. And we can spend that that one-on-one time, so I limit I limit my programs to very small groups, mm-hmm. um, and which something you know, as you would know, as a ski school director, is really difficult to do, right? Because yeah. you yeah. want to keep keep those groups full, right? Because that's what generates the margin that you're looking for. So yeah, yeah. I don't I don't have that concern. So I'm able to to work in in one-on-one settings and and, and really small one-on-two, one-on-three, maybe max one-on-four. Mm. kind of settings to 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 help these people get to to whatever goal they're trying to achieve or remove those limits that are that are holding them back so we do that uh, in a in a training context um we also are looking to some destination uh programming uh, i work with another friend of mine um where we do some trips to chile Every August, I don't know that we're going this year. Uh, no, no. On, that might be. Uh, which is so unfortunate because the, it's snowing like crazy there uh, <laughs> right now. And last year was a bit of a lean year for snow down there, unfortunately. But we go yeah. and do that trip, and uh, it's super fun. I've got a trip planned uh, to Austria, to Schrunz, uh, Austria, mm-hmm. in February. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good friend of mine that, that uh, owns and operates uh, Sofa Ski School. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Klaus Meyer. Yes. Um, yeah, he's helped me out to, to put together a trip there. So hopefully the international travel bans lift and, yeah. you know, people are healthy and safe and we can we can make that trip happen. And we'll uh, we'll go there and, and bring, a, once again, a small group uh, of mm. people, kind of an exclusive type group. And, and, yeah, just the highest level of training that we can possibly deliver is what, what the objective is there. Oh, and that's the, great. Probably the, the major part of what we have been up to, though, in these last couple of years is developing um, instructor training programs out of China. Mm. Um, so I mentioned earlier sort of the connection with Ski TV still happening, and we're working with Ski TV in China. Um, and we've been working, I've got some business associates over there where we've been delivering uh, level one and two 
Canadian Ski Instructors Alliance certification courses. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've gone over there and uh, we've got uh, some agreements in place with some of the indoor ski facilities uh, mm-hmm. where we're working with there's a company called Sunak okay. uh, that has some of the bigger resorts like in Guangzhou and uh, Chengdong and, and places like that. The mm-hmm. one in Shanghai, in Shanghai uh, opening up as well. So we're indoors there. And training and certifying instructors to, to basically help support and feed what is the fastest growing ski market currently in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then on top of that, we're outdoors at a place called Lake Songhua and another one called Betahu, okay. uh, which is in uh, Jilin province in China, where we're on snow doing uh, instructor training programs there. And then um, that sort of led us into some some ski school consulting work as well so we've worked with uh, a couple of the ski schools there to help uh, develop a few things with their their day-to-day operations and business from from everything as straightforward as as human resource uh, management uh, staffing and uh, staff training Hmm. um, and making sure that they're delivering a good product out on snow and to to helping develop their their product offering and looking at at what they're selling and if that's meeting what their customers' needs are and trying to understand their their customer base and help them understand their customer base so that they can they can run as efficiently as and effectively as possible and as profitably as as possible. It's a strange environment over there. They they don't um, they don't really subscribe to the group lesson uh, type of format. Okay. It's uh, it's predominantly private and, and that sort of thing. So we've mm. been steering them a little bit in ways to help support that, but then also to look at uh, programming that maybe does some family group uh, products and, and that sort of thing. Because socially, uh, like or culturally, it's a very social as- environment that they that the, that they live within. You know, like dinners tend to be big outings and, and mm. stuff like that. So socially, they they interact like crazy. But when it when it comes to the ski school lesson product, it's it's a private. That's it. Yeah. They don't. Uh, they okay. don't really do much, much of anything else. So it's kind of interesting and in working with the ski schools to help them look at their numbers and, and different ways to to create programming that's going to appeal to their to their market base. So yeah. So yeah. It's a once again, it comes back to what I led with is the un, unlimited is is kind of the key thing. Yeah. Is that you know we've been it's pretty broad in terms of what we do and it's just taking advantage of those opportunities that that weren't really accessible when I was limited by, yeah, by working with one ski resource. So that's, that's why the, why the name of it. And it's been, man, it's been a fun ride and it's, you know, the working in the fire department gives me a lot of free time. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the choices too, to, with the, my shift schedule with the fire department is kind of a four on four off uh, yeah. type of idea. And then I can bank some time and I get lots of vacation time. So being able to be on snow, I probably skied more in the last couple of years <laughs> here than, than I ever did as a ski school director. You know, which is uh, yeah, which has been which has been so much fun. And then then this experience of training new instructors and and then helping helping people achieve their goals or surpass their goals, it's been incredibly rewarding. Yeah. No, it's really good, isn't it? Like it's nice. It, it sounds like it also keeps it interesting from from yeah. your perspective i mean when i set the ski school up here i did deliberately didn't want to be tied to one particular resort and as a result i'm all over the place all the time 
and I really like it that way. Like you, you, you'll know as well as anyone. You know, if you just ski the same old runs in the same old resort year in year out, it gets pretty dull after a while. Um, it does, yeah. And uh, and and so you know you, you move around a bit, and it like I say it keeps it keeps it really fresh. Um, so that's great. Oh, fair play to you. That sounds, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's it's been awesome. It's been yeah. It's just uh, it was one of those ideas I had sort of churning around in the back of my head for for years. But yeah. it's just kind of like, well, how do you do that? Hmm. Well, you got to you got to take a jump, right? You so, do right, and you've got to kind of work out how it all works, and that's that's eventually why you get paid paid on it because you've taken the the time and the effort to work out all of that detail in the background. That's that's where the value is. You know, yeah, to, to put all that together, it's uh, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! Good, uh, good for you. That's awesome. Yeah, well, the last thing that we'll be doing this year is um, is back to back to producing uh, ski tips and things like that. So that yeah. the relationship with um, Ski TV China is such that that they're going to essentially purchase now the tips from from me. Oh, cool! Okay. And uh, and then they'll translate them and. And yeah, all that kind of stuff for for their market. So, so I'll be you know before I produce the tips in terms of the content itself, but I left the the editing and and all yeah. of that stuff to other people, right? Mm-hmm. But now we'll um, get a good good friend. Uh, he's actually coming over for dinner tonight. We're going to okay. go through some of this the footage, yeah, the footage I have, and we'll start to to make some edits so that we've got a bunch of tips to launch. Oh, uh, for the be- beginning of the season, and then so those will be my property now, and not just property of Ski TV. So, oh, brilliant! So stay, yeah, yeah stay tuned uh, oh, to good. the interwebs uh, for these things coming at you. I can I can pick up some new ones because I, <laughs> other than just the elbows down one, terrific. Yeah. All right. So look, um, where can people find you if they need to find you? Where, where, what's the best way to get in touch? With Josh well, uh, I'm just uh, working with some web developers as well on a new new website. So, uh, snowsportsunlimited.com okay. is uh, will be the is the current web address. So the old site's still up and running, and there's some contact uh, forms there that you can get to, to me. Mm-hmm. The new site uh, should be launched actually by I was hoping mid month this month uh, mm-hmm. here. It should be up and live and ready to go um, with some new content, some new. Uh, training dates and course dates, mostly for I guess for the people here in this country in Canada, yeah. and then also like we've got those 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 global camps. Uh, knock on wood that that our, our mm. global situation changes here uh, for the better in the the near future. But yeah, and then it's just that that content. So social media, I'm just uh, uh, you know Snow Sports Unlimited. Uh, on Instagram and Snow Sports Unlimited with Josh Foster on on Facebook. Okay. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we appreciate the follow and the likes, and and uh, stay tuned for some new content. Fantastic. Well, I'll I'll drop links uh, to all of those in the in the in the podcast notes to make sure that everybody has uh, has got those. Great. Cool. I appreciate that, and well, I appreciate you getting in touch, Dave. It was uh, fun to. To finally have a longer chat with you than, than just an email exchange back and forth. Yeah, exactly. And I really, really appreciate your time. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Oh, my pleasure. Okay. Outstanding. So